0: We're going to be in Matthew chapter one, verses eighteen, verse eighteen through the section of scripture Jesse read for us this morning, Matthew two twelve. Before we jump into the scripture, why don't we pray? I want to uh, remind you, for those of you who know, and let you know for those of you who don't, Candy Oliver, who had been struggling uh, with cancer for a while, uh, went home to be with the Lord, and uh, we are grieved at her loss are grateful for her hope in in Jesus, Uh, and and as you might know, Ron hasn't been well either. He's been in the hospital and uh, struggling as well, so uh, there isn't a a memorial service planned as of yet. As soon as there is one, we'll be sure uh, to let you know, so let's pray, keeping uh, candy in mind among others. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the joy it is to celebrate Jesus, our Savior, and uh, the way in which you made a way for sinners like us to have a relationship with you through his birth life, death, and resurrection. And we pray as we take time this morning in your word that you would remind us of your goodness and grace and it would encourage us to have our hearts to be formed into the image of our Savior. We do pray uh, for Ron and Candy's whole family as they mourn her home going. We pray that you'd be with Ron. Uh, Give him strength and also Lord health as he's struggling with his health right now. And uh, so we pray for your help there. We pray uh, for Dave Kearys. He recovers from uh, surgery, and uh pray, Lord, you'd have him up and moving around quick. And then, Lord, we pray for Tracy, but especially her son, Dawson, uh, who's uh, really struggling right now up at Dornbecker's, and pray that uh, there would be a full recovery there. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew one eighteen through chapter 2 verse 12. One of the things about Christmas, the Christmas season, is it is a time where a lot of us uh, are kind of nostalgic. You know, we think back to the things we have enjoyed doing and we sort of try to repeat those things. We think back to things we enjoy perhaps in your home. You have certain decorations you put up every year, uh, regardless of how ragged they have become. Uh, you know, these decorations must go up in this location, and heaven forbid we replace them with updated decorations. Uh, you might have uh, particular traditions in terms of how you celebrate. Some people like to open gifts on Christmas Eve. Some people open only open gifts on Christmas Day. Some people open one gift on Christmas Eve, and uh, I don't know what your tradition is. But you tend to have a pattern, and you repeat Uh, that pattern. And when you find out other people do it differently, you think, what is wrong with them? Messed up. You probably have a particular family you visit on particular days and you get kind of a routine of when you're visiting this set of grandparents, that set of grandparents, these aunts and uncles. And as you know, as families grow and get bigger and people grow up and have kids, all of a sudden some of those traditions start to shift. And change. And we're always trying to think back. How do we repeat these things? And the reason we do that is because we think back with fondness. On these experiences we've had. Of course uh, some of the things uh, we look back on. Uh, bring us a lot of joy, and that's why we like to do it. Maybe, maybe you have particular movies you watch every uh, Christmas season, and, uh, and and this can be kind of divisive. Uh, movies that you think are important. Uh, I one of my favorites. I, and this is terrible, but one of my favorites is Polar Express. Um, and you can you can tell immediately by saying it. There's a group of you in here who are like, oh, I love that film, the hot chocolate song with a great musical number. And then uh, others of you, uh, this movie is interesting. It doesn't have people who like it and then people who don't like it and then a group in the middle. It's got people who like me, watch it totally by myself because nobody in my house will watch it with me. (laughs) And I did, I enjoyed it. And then you have others uh, who who hate it so much they wish it had never been made. I don't know why it's so, I don't know why it's so divisive. But anyway, so, but we have these things we do every year nostalgia. We look back fondly. And this season, that's good. I I enjoy all of those things and I like Christmas traditions. What the, the Bible helps us do is we think about Jesus and we reflect back. That's the idea. We reflect back on Jesus. His birth calls us to think fondly about him. However, his birth and the way the Bible presents his birth wants us to think fondly and think of in even nostalgic terms, but he wants us to think about him in very specific ways. Not just in any way that might make us feel good. He wants us to think and reflect on him in very specific way. Namely, and this is the title of the message today, as you might see in your worship folder, Jesus is the Savior. He wants us to remember back to him, Jesus is Savior. So what the narrative here in in Matthew 1 and 2 does is it invites us to think back fondly on Jesus. However, to do so, the invitation is to dislodge from us a fondness for lesser things about him. So that's what he wants us to do is think back to his birth in, in ways that bring us joy. However, he doesn't want us to think back to his birth in ways that bring us joy that are less than Jesus the Savior. He wants us to remember he was born for a very, very particular purpose. So we're going to look at uh, the two sections of this, verses 18 through 25 of chapter 1. We'll cover that and then the part that uh, Jesse read for us earlier. So the first section here, uh, Matthew 1:18 through 25. Jesus the Savior saves his people. That's the first element of this that Matthew wants us to understand. Jesus the Savior saves his people. Let me read verses 18 through 25 of Matthew 1. And he called his name Jesus. Jesus the Savior saves his people. And specifically, why do we say he saves his people? If you just look back a little bit in your Bible, in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, what do you see there? You see a very long list of names, don't you? And if you're like a lot of people, when you come to a long list of names in your Bible, you scan them quickly and get to the part where it ends. But these names are really, really important. And what Matthew is trying to do, because Matthew, in particular, as he was writing the story of Jesus' life, he was, in particular, wanting to have the people of Israel, the Jews, connect with what Jesus' mission was. And so the book of Matthew starts with the story of the genealogy of the people of Israel leading up to their great king, King David. So the the book of Matthew starts and the Jewish people who are reading the book of Matthew, their hearts would have swelled with pride as they thought back on their people. The people of Israel really culminated in the reign of King David and his son, King Solomon. And, And what he's doing is he begins the book of Matthew with this list of people. The people of Israel would have thought back on all the promises that God made to his people. The promises he made to Abraham. That they would be a great people and they would have a particular land. And that the, the people of Israel would be innumerable. And this covenant promise was carried from Abraham to uh, Isaac. And then to Jacob who was called Israel. And, and, and then it was uh, ratified in the code of law through Moses. And then the, the promise was verified to King David in 2 Samuel 7. And all these promises to the people of Israel... What Matthew wants the people of Israel to recognize is all these promises are culminated in Jesus. That Jesus is the culmination of all of their promises and all the promises God has made to the people of Israel are culminated in Jesus for a particular purpose. And what is that purpose? To forgive his people of their sins. That's the purpose. All these promises, all the way through the Old Testament, the people of Israel were to realize that in the person of Jesus, all these promises are filled, fulfilled as he does what is needed most, saves his people from his sins. So Jesus was born to save, and he was born to save a particular people, his people. So he was born to save a particular people, his people, from a particular enemy. What was that enemy? Sin. Sin. And we have to also recognize as we look at the life of Jesus in these passages, he does this purpose, saves a particular people from a particular enemy, his people from sin, to the exclusion of all other purposes. This is his singular focus. Look at verse 21 of Matthew 1. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will... He will save his people from their sins, but you could imagine all of the things people had hoped would be in that sentence. All of the things people would have hoped Jesus would bring, and Jesus is making quite clear his purpose, save his people from their sins. Think about what is happening here, particularly to Joseph, who is sort of the primary person in this little narrative. Joseph, of course, is betrothed to Mary, meaning they are engaged. It is a permanent relationship that must be a broken formally, not informally. He just doesn't send her a breakup text. He's got to actually go through legal proceedings to end this relationship. When it became quite clear that Mary was with child, Joseph decided that it was improper for him to marry her We shouldn't call into question the ability of Mary and Joseph to communicate with one another I can't imagine that Joseph had no idea she was pregnant until he, she was showing like one day He goes over to the house to say hi and say I don't know how to say this politely, but because when is it okay to ask if a woman is pregnant? <laughs> never After she has given birth, you can recognize, oh, you've been pregnant. I had no idea. (laughs) Absolutely no idea. That is appropriate. Guys, guys, if you aren't taking notes right now, I don't know what's wrong with you. This is good stuff. So it wasn't as though he didn't know what was going on. Like all of a sudden she had a little baby bump. She's like, what's going on? What's going on? He knew what was going on. But as it progressed along, he realized this is happening. And he, like many of us in that situation, was probably struggling to figure out how this thing had worked. What was going on? And likely as well, he's probably wondering about his particular role in what is going on. One thing he does know, the woman he is marrying is pregnant and it's not his child. It might very well be that he wasn't clear that this child had been conceived by the power of God and not an illicit affair. He wasn't made, there's no way for him to, to know. And so Joseph determines that this marriage can't proceed in all propriety. He cannot marry a woman. Who is already pregnant, and that is with uh, a child that isn't his. And so he determines, though, because of his kindness, his justness, his rightness, is that he would end the relationship, but do so in a way quietly so as to minimize the amount of reputational damage that Mary might suffer. He is, of course, visited by an angel, but unlike Zechariah and unlike Mary, he's visited by an angel in what means? In a dream. It's one thing, I suppose, to be standing in a kitchen and have Gabriel stand there and suddenly give you a message. It's a whole other thing to go and have it go to sleep and wake up in the morning, having realized you had a, a dream about an angel. And if you're like me, you do the same thing. You're like, was that a dream and an angel, or was that a bad burrito? I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I might have. I, I might have just had a dream. But but Joseph knew. That this message from this angel was a message from the Lord. That this dream was God working to communicate to him. And the angel had a very simple message. Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. What are the things that he might be afraid of? A number of things that Joseph might have been afraid of. Number one, as he made it clear, he was likely concerned about his reputation being ruined. That's not a bad thing. It's not as though he is being arrogant or self-righteous as a person who was devoted to the things of God. He did not want to communicate to those around him that he was willing to compromise on his views of God, his relationship with God. So this isn't arrogance or self-righteousness. Joseph just understood, I know the right thing to do here and the right thing to do here is to not marry her. And the angel says, don't worry about that. It is not improper for you to marry her. Not improper at all. He might also though fear what he is going to have to go through in the community. How is he going to explain this? You could imagine him at the local watering hole explaining to the guys that Mary is pregnant, but nothing happened. I mean, you could imagine how that conversation is going to go. Sure, Joseph. Whatever, whatever you tell yourself to help you sleep at night, you know. But but he knew this child was the son of God. And that Mary was pregnant, not because of an illicit relationship, but because of the power... Of the Holy Spirit put God uh, in her as her uh, child he might have also feared what it means to raise a child who is the Son of God that is not his son what is his role precisely in this relationship but interestingly when the angel had given him this message and remember when you look in your scripture we never hear from Joseph he never speaks Joseph, without speaking, merely obeys. He just simply does what God has told him to do. Finally, at the end of this, the angel gives Joseph a very important job. Verse 21, she will bear a son, you, who? You, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. Now, if you go over to Luke and, and read uh, what Gabriel had told Mary, she informed Mary The name of the child, and the child will be called Jesus. He does something different with Joseph. The angel tells Joseph what? You will call his name Jesus. You will be the one who will name this child. Not Mary. Mary was informed of the name. Joseph, on the other hand, you will uh, provide the name. Joseph is going to name him Jesus. And the reason he needs to be called Jesus is this name Jesus has in it, this meaning, he will save his people. And then the angel adds to that from their sins. He needs this name because his purpose is salvation and not any kind of salvation, salvation from sins. So Joseph, don't fear. Verses 18 through 20. There's no shame in taking Mary as your wife. Joseph, of course, is a man of scruples, a man of reputation, a man of righteousness, and. And the angel calms his righteous concerns and the angel gives him the green light to marry. Mary. I had to put a pause there because it's two different Marys. Okay. Now, why is it so important that Joseph named Jesus? And why is it so important that Joseph not divorce Mary at this point? And the understanding of that comes from that long genealogy that many of us skip at the beginning of Matthew. Let's look at it. In beginning in verse 15, I'm beginning arbitrarily in verse 15. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So here's this long genealogy that begins in Abraham and goes through the line of King David, establishing that Jesus is the Savior to come from the line of King David. And who does this genealogy go through? It goes through Joseph. Joseph needs to be the father of this child because Joseph is in the line of King David. But Joseph isn't the father of this child. Or is he? Who is going to do the naming? Joseph is going to do the naming. And, and what what God is doing here for Joseph, is he is saying, now Jesus here may not be your biological son because he is the son of, of God. However, he is to be your son. And you are to name him because it is through you, Joseph, that the prophecy to David will be fulfilled. So God is calling to Joseph, not merely to obedience, but Joseph had a had a role to play. What God had seen fit to do was to provide for Jesus the lineage of King David through his adopted father, Joseph. And so he tells Joseph, you have no small part, you have a huge part, and because of that, you are the one who is to impart on your son the name, the name that only you, the son of David, can give, the name Jesus, because he will save his people from there." sins. In verses 21 through 23, the angel makes clear what God in the flesh is going to do for us. He says, behold, a virgin will conceive. You will call his name Emmanuel. So Jesus has a mission to save sinners, but he does not do it from afar. What the angel helps us understand as he's speaking to Joseph is God is with us. He wants intimacy and closeness with us. The reason he has to come and save us is because we have rejected intimacy and closeness with him. The problem, what has separated us from God, what has removed from us that closeness with God is in fact our sin and our rebellion. God did not create the distance. We did. But now God is showing up to create the closeness. But we aren't creating. We're not the ones seeking God. He's the one seeking us. The problem is sin. If you want to read what that separation looks like, you can read in the book of Exodus this scene where God comes down onto Mount Sinai and he's going to provide the covenant to his people through Moses. And if you remember reading in that in Exodus, God comes down in a fire and Mount Sinai suddenly looks like an erupting volcano. And God explains to Moses, you need to keep the people back. Make sure they don't touch the mountain. If they touch the mountain, they're going to die. And if you let an animal touch the mountain, it's going to die. And if somebody touches the mountain, you've got to kill them. Because they shouldn't touch the mountain because the mountain is holy. And if you're going to kill them, you've got to kill them without touching them. I know this sounds weird, but he said, yeah, if you're going to kill them, what you have to do because they touch the holy mountain, you've got to make sure that you kill them by stoning them or shooting them with an arrow. I'm, I'm quoting from your Bible here. You, some of you didn't realize this kind of stuff is in there. You've got to read it. It's awesome. <laughs> he said, because after they touch the mountain, you, don't, you can't touch them. You can't touch them. So you've got to kill them from a distance. Now, why is it that God in this mountain suddenly is so dangerous for the people of Israel that he says you have to stay away? It's because God is holy and righteous, and his people aren't, they are sinners. And this is the reality of the relationship between God and every single human. There is a distance. God is holy and righteous. And we are sinners and rebellious. And God says, I want to create that closeness so that you can come to me and not be in danger of judgment. But instead, you can come to me and experience closeness and intimacy. God is going to be with us. And in order for him to be with us, he has to forgive our sin. In order for it to be safe, for us to be in the presence of God, our sin has to be addressed. And so this is why in Matthew one twenty one, Jesus comes with a singular mission. He will save his people from their sin. He is solving the biggest problem humanity has ever uh, faced. He is also solving the one problem that we need fixed, which is our ability to know and be with God. The problem with this particular mission is you and I have lots of problems sin doesn't make the top 10 And you and I have lots of things that are important to us and being close with God doesn't make the top 20 And Jesus when he shows up says those are the two things that are most important That your sin problem is fixed and your relationship God with God problem is fixed And this is why if you've read the Gospels so many people struggled with Jesus Jesus they wanted him to do lots of things, but fixing the sin problem and the God problem wasn't two of them. But we learned very early in Matthew chapter one, "He has come to save his people from, his, from their sin." Look at verses 24 and 25 of Matthew 1, if you don't mind. Joseph woke up from his sleep. I love this, because you don't see this very often in the Bible. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. I mean, it's just so basic. It's just so routine. It's just, it's almost unimpressive how plainly it's worded. But usually, if you've ever especially read your Old Testament, God says this, and then what's the phrase that follows? They did not do it. (laughs) And they did not do it with attitude. I mean, that's on repeat over and over. And here you have Joseph. The angel appears in a dream. He wakes up. Well, let's get it done. Just gets it done. God makes a statement and he obeys. He woke up and he did as the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. While at the same time they continued to be physically separate. Not experiencing marital marital intimacy until after the child was born. Because he understood what God was up to. This child was the son of God. Not to be claimed by Joseph. However, Joseph was to have a role in being the father of this son as the means by which this son would fulfill the promises to to King David and the people of Israel. So Joseph knows what God is doing. Joseph understands why God is doing it. And Joseph, without saying any words, without making any big fuss, shows that he wants to be part of what God is up to. He says, I see what God is doing. I see my small part in it. And I'm in. I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of what God is doing to bring salvation from sin to his people. In particular, the people of Israel. Fulfilling God's promises to bring salvation to the people of Israel. Jesus is the Savior. He saves his people, the people of Israel in this case, from their sin. The question though it has to be as we get into chapter 2 is all of a sudden we take a big right hand turn or left hand turn, we take a turn, all of a sudden things get a little strange because the question has to be this, is God only saving Israel? So if, if Jesus is the Savior and he saves his people, it might be fair to ask, well who are his people? Is it only the Jews that get salvation from sin? Is it only the people of God who can claim the promises of God in the Old Testament who will receive salvation from sin? Because it makes it clear. Jesus is quite clear in, in Matthew 121, He saves whose people? His people from their sin. So the question is, who are His people? Immediately, if we think about the people of Israel, we know a number of people who are part of the people of Israel who aren't Jewish. We can think of a couple of important, especially women in particular. One woman in particular in the line of King David, in the line of Jesus' Messiah, is a woman named Rahab. She lived in the city of Jericho, she made a living. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) She asked for salvation. And she was given salvation. And the means of her salvation, she was saved from judgment by, in Jericho and delivered to the people of God. And she joined the people of God. And so she was saved. She was saved from judgment by joining the people of God. So Rahab became Jewish, although she wasn't born in Israel. And she received salvation from God. But there's others too. One that is even stranger is a woman named Ruth. You've heard of Ruth because we all wish that the Ruth story was made into a movie. He'd be on the Hallmark Channel. (laughs) Ruth was from what country? Anybody guess? Moab. Moab. Boo. Come on. (laughs) Let's do it right. Now, so there was lots of people who could join Israel. If you're an Edomite, you could be, join Israel. If you're an, an, an Aramean, you could join Israel. There other lots of uh, people who, who could join Israel if they should decide. But the Bible says a Moabite can never be in the congregation of the people of Israel. It says that. So what does Ruth say? Challenge accepted. And she's standing with Naomi and she says to Naomi, what? Your people will be my people Your God will be my God. And so here we have a Moabite. Who by faith said. I trust God in his kindness. And she finds herself in the line. Of King David. And finds herself now in the line. Of Jesus the Savior. From their sins. So our question must be. If Jesus came to save his people. From their sins. Who then are his people? Jesus the Savior. Saves his people. And his people are those who trust him. His people are those who trust him. In Matthew, in the book of Luke, in the book of Genesis, in Chronicles, in the book of Ezra, in the Nehemiah, there are long lists of names which are really, really difficult to read. And all these long lists of names are intended to establish who God's people are. And what we discover here... Is everyone who trusts Jesus is God's people. Everyone who trusts Jesus finds their name in the genealogy of Jesus. Those are his people. This is the unexpected twist in the mission of Jesus to bring salvation. Is that anyone who trusts him are his people. Anyone who trusts him are his people. Even Gentiles. However. Anyone who does not trust him is not his people, even the Jews. To be his people, you must trust him to be Savior. And if you are a Gentile or a Jew, if you trust him, you are his people and receive salvation. However, if you don't trust him, whether you are a Gentile or a Jew, you are not his people. In order to be of the people of God, you must claim the promises of God for forgiveness of sin through Jesus. Amen. Chapter 2. We have wise men. How many wise men? We have no idea. At least two. Because it's plural. Could have been two. Could have been dozen. Why do we say there was three? Because there were three gifts. That's why. But we have no idea how many guys there were. Could have been two where one of them would have had to carry two gifts. He would have been fine. <laughs> they aren't really heavy. They're very costly, but they're not very heavy. But there could have been a bunch. Even in the early, early church, these three guys were given names. I don't know what they, the names are because they're hard to pronounce because they're not English names. So we don't know how many wise men are. Where are they from? They are from the east. Where east? East. You know, could have been... Persia, present-day Iran, could have been Babylon, present-day Iraq, could have been India—I don't know—but east, east of there. But it's non-specific. What we do know is they're not Jewish; they're foreign. They're not of the people of Israel. And so, what we have here in the first chapter, we have a genealogy going through David's line. And the people of Israel would be reading this first chapter of Matthew, and their hearts would have been warmed. Our history is coming to culmination. Chapter 2, and they go, who are these yahoos? I thought we were reading about Israel. What are these men from the East doing in our story? These wise men are set in contrast to the religious leaders of Israel and King Herod, as we're going to see. Those with the least amount of information, that is the wise men, those with the, the least amount of information respond the way the others should have. With worship, those with the least amount of information they go to the the Savior and worship. Those with the greatest amount of information do not. The wise men had very little information, as it tells us they show up in Jerusalem because they had anticipated the birth of the King of the Jews. And so, if you were going to Israel to find the King of the Jews, you would go to Jerusalem. That was the the place that you would go. So, with very little information, they go to the King of Jews. Why do they go there? They say. In, in, in verse 2. We saw his star. And it rose. And we've come to worship him. So we don't know how much information they had, But what little they had. They said. We know that the, the birth of the king of the Jews. Will be announced with a star. And of course the, the, the people of Israel. Understood that this prophecy. Came in the book of Numbers. And it's from a prophet. A guy named Balaam. And that's kind of interesting. Because Balaam. Well, he was awful. He did in fact prophesy at the power of God. He was in fact hired to curse the people of Israel. He wasn't able to curse the people of Israel because God wouldn't let him curse the people of Israel. And in one of these sort of forced prophecies where God overwhelms him, he prophesies that a star would would rise. Just to give you the end of the story, when Balaam realized he wasn't going to be able to curse the people of Israel, he figured out a plan. He told the enemies who wanted to hire him to curse the people of Israel. said, listen, I've tried it. I can't curse them. God won't let me. However, if you were to send people into their camp to tempt them to worship idols, then God would have to judge them. And that's precisely what they did. So he just came up with a way to get Israel to fall into sin and experience God's judgment. Israel then attacked their enemies, and Balaam was one of the ones killed in the war that followed. So Balaam wasn't a great guy. Nonetheless, God used him to prophesy the coming of Jesus through a star. And everybody understood that this was going to happen, because when the wise men showed up and said, look, we're following the star, the people, the religious leaders noticed, they didn't say, what are you talking about? Were you guys crazy? There's no star. They didn't say that. What'd they say? He said, no, yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They apparently didn't have that little bit of information from the prophet Micah, likely. So, so these, uh, these wise men with very little information, they show up in Jerusalem with these expensive gifts. Likely, they were expecting to show up in Jerusalem and find a, a king being installed on his throne. That's what they were expecting. That's why they showed up with these expensive gifts. Because when a king is put on his throne, everybody shows up and wants to show their loyalty to him. And these also would have been joining it. They were likely shocked that there was no party going on. They showed up, wait, we we thought the king would, would, isn't there a thing going on? We saw we got the email. Well, it wasn't an email, it was a star, but we figured... And nobody there is is participating. They expected to join this inauguration, and no inauguration was going on. Then we have King Herod. Verse 3. Herod the king heard this. He was troubled. Why would King Herod be troubled? Dude was out of his mind. That's why he was troubled. But also, he didn't want anybody else to be claiming to be king. And so he got the chiefs and the scribes and the pharisees and all the really smart bible guys together and he said now where's this supposed to happen where's the king supposed to be born And, and they said bethlehem because of this prophecy and so he he gathered the the location of the birth and then he went to the wise men and said hey why don't you go find him then come back to me so i can come and worship him now i don't know if you know much about herod if he is talking he is lying He had no interest in worshiping this child, as you will discover if you read on. In fact, when he discovers that he is being tricked and he wasn't sure which baby it was, he just decides, I'll kill all the children two years and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem. That's how crazy this guy was. So Herod tries to figure out where the king is. Here's what's interesting about Herod. He finds out precisely where the king is. He finds out where he's supposed to be born. He finds out when he is supposed to be born. He is very practical and he is very thorough. Here's something we should understand between the wise man and King Herod. Not the people of Israel. Between the wise man and King Herod. If you were alive during this time and you wanted to find the Savior, you could. It just had to be a matter of did you want to find him. If you wanted to find him, guys from the east could find him. And if you wanted to find him, a pagan, non-believing, psycho king could find him. But who is the one group of people who aren't even looking? The leaders, the religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. They They have no interest in finding the Messiah. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests, their only concern is Self-preservation. How do we manage our power and our influence and our rulership underneath this crazy Herod guy? How do we keep our place? A Messiah showing up now is terribly inconvenient. He's going to ruin everything. When I look at how the wise men responded to the little information... That they had about, the Pharaoh, had about the messiah. It's we would have expected the religious leaders to behaving that way. We would have expected the religious leaders to be announcing the birth of the king. Wouldn't we? We would have expected the people of Israel to be celebrating. That finally they are going to experience the real salvation that they need. Relationship with God. With closeness. But they aren't pursuing him because they don't want the solution that God is offering. They want a different solution. They want their problems fixed. They want their life better. The religious leaders want more power and influence. And they aren't pursuing any kind of relationship with God whatsoever. In this little section of scripture, Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12, only the wise men are his people. Not the religious leaders who are Jewish. Not Herod who is a bit Jewish. The people of God in Matthew chapter 2 are the wise men from the east. And if you were a Jew reading Matthew and you got to Matthew chapter 2, you would have been tempted to slam it closed and never read it again. Because it would have frustrated you. No, God's people are his people. But what Jesus is doing, he says, no, my people are those who trust me. Who hear my words and receive by faith salvation from what? Sin. And experience then closeness in relationship with God. The people of the wise men, of course, left the religious leaders left Herod, and they followed the star to the city of Bethlehem where they were able to identify the house where Jesus was living and they offered him gifts. And this is an expression of worship. They recognize him as king. They recognize him as Lord. They recognize him as Savior. After they worship him, they are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So they went home a different way. Jesus is the Savior. He saves his people, and his people are those who trust him. A couple of things to think about as we close. The most important question at Christmas, amongst all the things we might reflect and all the nostalgia we might enjoy, the most important thing to reflect on at Christmas is... Is Jesus my Savior from my sin? That's the most important question. All the other celebrations of Christmas have their place and their purpose in enjoyment and bringing us closeness with family. There is only one thing at Christmas that will save us forever. And that is trusting Jesus to forgive us of our sin. In order to trust Jesus, you have to first admit that you need God to forgive you. Many of us struggle with wanting to admit that we need God to forgive us. We, we struggle for a number of reasons. Number one, we struggle with admitting that we need God to forgive us because we don't sin as bad as the guy across the street. He needs Jesus. In fact, it would be great if that guy got a little religion, wouldn't it? Maybe he'd mow his lawn a little more often. So we, we say we don't need forgiveness because we're not as bad as somebody else. We don't, we, aren't, we don't need forgiveness because I haven't broken the, the five worst things I can think of in my, in my mind. Or the thing we do nowadays, this is sort of a modern development. I don't need forgiveness because it is inappropriate for God to tell me what is wrong. I'll decide what is right and wrong in my own life. To trust Jesus, we have to come to the place by the work of the Holy Spirit where we say, you know what, I know and I'm going to stop trying to fool myself I need relationship with God and I don't have one because I have violated his holiness. The good news is if you're in a place where you say I need forgiveness Jesus came for that reason. That was the whole point. And so Jesus comes to give you forgiveness and all you have to do is trust him. And if you trust Jesus not only are you forgiven you are his people. Are his person. I don't know how to say that. You know what I mean. If you go, if you celebrate Christmas and miss that Jesus is your savior, I don't know. I don't want, I don't want to be rude, but here we go. I don't see the point of celebrating Christmas. I mean, it's great. It's fun. I like the food. I like getting presents. But in January, we'll forget about it. And for many of us in January, we got to pay for it. And all of a sudden the joy is kind of sucked out of it a little bit. And the only way for this thing to actually have traction in our life. Is if we say you know what I need a savior. To save me from my sin. Second thing about. Jesus and his mission which is fantastic. To be saved from our sin means we join the people of God. We are not saved into isolation. We have a place to belong. When we are saved, when Jesus works on our hearts and gives us salvation and eternal life, God receives us and so we belong to Him. And God receives us so we belong to and among His people. And what's fantastic about His people is there are no statuses. Stata? Stati? <laughs> There's not more than one status. <laughs> there aren't tears. There aren't upside and downside. There's not varsity and junior varsity. There's not tenured and untenured. There is saved and that's it. That's what there is that in, in this group of people. And this is the difference between the, the, the people of Israel here in Matthew 1 and 2. You've got these people who understand, understand status. King Herod and the religious leaders. And they want to make sure that that status is maintained. And they're concerned the Messiah is going to ruin their social structure. Guess what? The Messiah is going to ruin their social structure. That's the whole point. We get to join the people of God, and the people of God come together and we say, What, we, what do we have in common? We all needed forgiveness from our sin. And the point of connection we have with one another is Christ. In Jesus, you belong both to Him. And you belong within and to the people of God. I might suggest one of the things as uh, the body of believers at Christmas time, we can do a better job celebrating. Is what does it mean to break down those barriers of status and tears. This is a hard thing. This is where we see people and you and I do it all the time. We see people and we put them in a certain place above us or below us. And the gospel gives us good news, the freedom from having to do that anymore. We can just receive people as brothers and sisters in the Lord because they have been forgiven like us. So, finally, this think about how God accepts his people who trust Jesus. Do you accept others who are God's people the same way he does? Or do we create tears? Do we create groups of in? And not quite in. Still earning their status. In this scripture there are three kinds of people. Let me give you the three people. Herod. Antagonistic to God and his purposes. He did not want God, he did not want God's purposes completed and he was going to oppose them with all of his might, all of his power, all of his resources. Despite being the most powerful person in a very large piece of real estate, he failed miserably at stopping God's purposes because Herod is a pansy compared to Jesus the baby. So for some of us reading this account here, we need to decide, are we going to continue to be antagonistic to God like Herod was? Maybe it's time to realize God wants to invite us into his purposes. There's another group of people. it's religious leaders, Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests. These people are religious, but they have missed the point and therefore have missed God. This is the scariest group of people to be in. There's lots and lots of people who are extraordinarily religious and have never trusted Jesus because they're trusting religion. They're trusting being good. They're trusting meeting all the right criteria for fitting into a religious group of people. But the religious leaders are no closer to God than Herod. The only difference is They think that their religion is going to save them, but the only way to be saved is to trust that Jesus saves me from our from my sin. Finally, there is the Magi, the wise men. These are outsiders who want to know God, and they find God because they know they're outsiders with God. They know they don't have an end with Him because I'm separated from God. I have an opportunity to know God because God is the one who provided the way for outsiders. And so God sought the wise men. And because the wise men were open, they found him because they obeyed his word. Jesus saves his people. And his people are those who trust him. God, we thank you for the grace you have shown us in your scripture. That you would save these wise men. Who trusted you despite very little information that they had. And God, I would pray that you would move in our hearts in such a way that we would trust you in the same way father i would pray for those of us who are here this morning who don't know you that even in this moment you might do a work on our heart to bring us to that place where we recognize we need to be forgiven for our sin and to know that you save sinners like us when we trust you God, many of us have been believers for a while and we've gone to church for a while and we know a lot of the stuff in the Bible and we know know how things are supposed to work. And some of us, Lord, we've gotten a little bit big for our britches. We decided that we kind of measure up and matter a little bit because we've been around a while. And God, we pray that you would humble us, help us to recognize we're all in the same boat. Saved by grace alone. That whether we've been saved for five minutes. Or five decades. We're all in the same place. Trusting Jesus. Would you allow this body of believers. God to be one that intentionally breaks down. Walls of hierarchy. And status. And we're willing God to connect and associate. And know and love. And be with people. Where we have Jesus in common. And perhaps little else. God, we pray that as we celebrate Christmas this year especially, that you would fill our hearts with joy of remembering that Jesus saves sinners like us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song.